All right, everybody. The uh, scripture for today is First Thessalonians two nine through twenty. You remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We worked night and day so that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how pure, uh, upright, and blameless our conduct was towards you believers. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging you and pleading that you lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We constantly give thanks to God for this, that when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as what it really is, God's word, which is also at work in you believers. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffer the same things from your own compatriots as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displease God and oppose everyone by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Thus they have constantly been filling up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has overtaken them at last. As for us, brothers and sisters, when for a short time we were made orphans by being separated from you in person, not in heart, we longed with great eagerness to see you face to face. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, wanted to come uh, again and again, but Satan blocked our way for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming, is it not you? Yes, you are our glory and our joy. Uh, So, this is a tough one. Um, The title of the sermon is uh, Community Founded on Joy. Uh, I was going to ask, I was going to go in all in and ask if Res Church sparked joy, or if specific members of Res Church sparked joy, but I thought better of it, because uh, outside of this theme about joy, there's some stuff in the context of um, uh, this verse that is really tough historically, uh, that has some very difficult implications. So uh, try and kind of work through both of those themes to get to some uh, satisfactory resolution of what Paul's trying to say to us here. So I, I have to be honest, so far a jaunt through the lectionary's treatment of Thessalonians has, in my opinion, suffered from the problem anytime, that you get anytime you look at uh, an ancient letter. Because, first of all, like, ton of formalities, you know, like, a, man, you're so great, and I'm so great, and we're so great, and there's this problem, you know, like, it has this kind of uh, formal quality to it that especially if you want to be faithful to the entirety of the thing and look at it uh, as at least as laid out in the lectionary you're going to be preaching a lot of Sundays on uh, some stuff that is relatively light in terms of insight and heavy in terms of history and context so you know we've kind of seen Paul praising the people of Thessalonica we've seen uh, him talk about the character of his relationship with them and we've seen him talking about the fact, and this is where it, it starts to kind of uh, present what the letter is about, uh, praising both him and the people in Thessalonica for being truth-tellers regarding the gospel. And you remember from last time I uh, preached about this, uh, we talked about the concept of parisia, that he was willing to tell the truth, and that uh, Paul thought about the gospel as being a word uh, that he would speak because uh, God laid it on his heart, and that uh, the character of that word was that it's something that he kind of had to say, and therefore there is a truth to it 
that uh, was deeper than and more certain than other human truths. So, uh, so far, despite the fact that he's been talking about how great they are and how great he is, the theme has been, uh, what does it look like to found a community on a vision of truth? Uh, so, you know, the first, uh, first day we, we talked about Thessalonians. I, I talked about how I love that riff uh, that he did about uh, what it means to be a Christian uh, in the world, in a community. And if you remember, that was about a faith that works, a love that labors, and a hope that endures, which I thought was a, a beautiful little frame. That's nice, and as we get further into the letter, we're going to talk about all kinds of interesting theological questions, like the main one that the letter's about, which is, hey, if God's coming back and you know some of our Christian brothers and sisters have died, what happens to them? Like, where do, where do they fall in the... Uh, in the eternal scheme of things, if they've died before Christ's imminent second coming, and will they rise, and you know, how should we think about uh, our community in that context? I mean, those things are interesting theologically, um, and it does get at this kind of question of uh, what is Christian community really about, and who's included in it. Uh, but, you know, so far there haven't been a lot of themes that I think are they're super theologically uh, rich, Hopefully it'll cash out later in Thessalonians to be. But the, the other thing that is weird about it, and I mentioned this the week before, is not only are we reading a formal letter, but it has the character of like reading someone's email that we don't have. There must have been things in the context of this letter being read out loud in the congregation that people would have said, oh my gosh, I know exactly what he's talking about. And man, did he nail that. Or boys, is he right about this dynamic in the congregation? And we kind of don't have access to uh, that context or or that history, so it's very difficult to figure out exactly what's going on if we're going to be honest about the letter and treat it as if it's a letter instead of doing what most people do with Paul's letters, which is pick out the little fragments that they find spiritually worthwhile and uh, quote them and say how great they are. So if we really want to engage it, we really want to think about the big message here, the big truth here, if we want to get out of all the kind of weeds for any given letter. And I was thinking about this, like if someone opened up one of your random emails from a person that was important to you, how much of it would really be about big and ultimate themes? Probably not a lot. You know, like, can you imagine people 2,000 years later being like, yeah, they were very, very concerned about this thing called the Game of Thrones and the problem of spoiling. And uh, you wanted to make sure to not, and a spoiler really is a larger kind of sin. You know, I mean, like, so it's, it, it is tough to kind of read a letter like this and think exactly what we parse out about the character of the community versus the kind of theological commitments, and that's, that's where we've got to kind of work together to interpret and think about it here. But there is behind uh, this letter, uh, and, and I mentioned this both in the opening and, and last time I preached, when you bracket out all that stuff, the big message here uh, and the issues that follow in this letter are that, uh, is an argument by Paul that Christianity redefines what community means, that our vision of community is different and our, a vision of community that is uh, grounded in the truth is different from the vision of community that the world shares. That's the, that's the big message here. And Paul's saying to the community in Thessalonica, hey, uh, if you are really a Christian community, you have to think about what it means not just to be a, uh, a, a, a Christian community, but really a fully Christian community. How is it that community is redefined when we had put those two words together? That's the kind of interesting Think to me that I, I've been thinking about a lot around this letter more than I normally think about around uh, writing scriptures. I'm afraid to admit, but uh, writing sermons. But you know, like it's it, it really is to me a fascinating question that when we say Christian community, do we put 
the emphasis on the Christian part or the community part. And I, I think most of us say uh, that the defining concept there is community and Christianity is a subset of all the different kinds of communities. But the alternative is to say Christianity is the focus of the phrase and there are lots of different things that are changed by being connected with their Christianity such that Christianity transforms them in a way that they're no longer recognizable. Is a Christian community like other communities is the easiest way of putting it. Is there something unique about a community that is organized around Christ? Community is a word that we throw around a ton. And for those of you who you know, grew up around and continue to hang out around evangelicals, there was this uh, time in the like, late 90s, early 2000s, where there basically wasn't a church in America that wasn't uh, acclaimed to be some kind of community church. Like, somehow all the churches that were previous to them were not community churches, and everyone discovered that these churches were fully and truly community. So, I, like, it's kind of weird way to, to start, but th- think about uh, what we mean when we say community. Well, uh, I think one of the weird parts that, uh, of the modern world that uh, Paul is also addressing here in the context of the ancient world is that we've kind of gotten to this point where we call literally every gathering of people that is organized around some purpose a community. So like my debate friends will talk about the debate community, uh, fans of college sports ball teams would say it's the community of Duke fans or, or Tar Heel fans, uh, Mason and and Trey are deeply involved in a community of people who have to uh, catch them all. Now, the question is, is Christianity as a community, debate as a community, fans as a community, Pokemon players as a community, does the word community mean the same thing in each one of those instances? I mean, all these different folks that lay a claim to being a community are not wrong, but their definition of community is kind of weird. So the definition of community that... Most of us have, is the best I could come up with, is it's something like a group of individuals who share an interest, a practice, or some identity. And a community here is defined as a uniquely human phenomenon. Although, by the way, nowadays, as you think about what a community is, we've even expanded the definition of community to say that animals have communities. I learned from some Plexus people that the microbes in your gut are referred to also as a kind of community. So what, is it, what distinguishes As we expand our understanding of community, one of the questions I wanted to ask is, what distinguishes a community from a group? Like, why use the community word anymore if the idea of group would apply equally effectively? You've got your group of fans, your group of Pokemon players, your group of debate friends, your uh, group of gut microbes, your group of animals. What is it and why do we hold on to the concept of community? Why is it important that things are uh, defined as a community? What distinguishes a community from a group? Well, Paul is actually defining a vision of community here. And he says, there are two kinds of communities. Those two kinds of communities are differentiated by their understanding of the word. See, this is what's really interesting, is that on one definition of a community, it's just kind of a group. But on the Christian definition of community that Paul's talking about, it's a really strange kind of community, okay? Because think about it. Christian community is, yes, we share in common some vision of things, practices, understandings, but Christian community is not just about the perpetuation of Christianity. See, that's the thing. Ideally, Christian community is about the idea that 
there is this person who is the goal of that community, the ground of that community, the truth of that community, the focus of that community, and just to wrap it all up, a member of that community. That's a really weird kind of community. It's not just a group of people who have similar ideas about who God is in theology. We literally, as Christians, believe that Christ is both a member of and the external principle of and the foundation of our community. So the reason why I'm spending so much time yammering about community is this, that we have a fundamentally different definition of what it means to be in community. And we have this strange relationship in our community that a person who is also the member is also a person who is the goal, is also the foundation, and it changes how we think about community, so much so that that word no longer simply applies to people who also want to catch them all or to shared gut fauna. The Christian vision of community is a very and intensely specific relationship that makes it so, that so radically changes our vision of community that it's almost as if it doesn't count as community in the common term anymore, but instead it redefines community to call us into a different kind of life together. That's the thing that's beautiful. Paul is not just talking about himself being in a relationship to a bunch of other people. He's not opening up the letter here by saying, hey, I'm a good guy and we have a great community. What Paul is doing is Paul is saying we have a community that is organized around this person Christ, and that community is one of the ways that we live out our Christian life. And the great thing here is what unites our community is not shared intention or shared purpose or shared habits. What really unites our community is that it's organized around Christ. And as I want to talk about a little bit today and unpacking this verse, the main thing that Paul says is the distinguishing feature of a uniquely Christian vision of community versus other understandings of community is what? If you look, what is the thing that he says is unique about the Christian vision of community? Joy. Joy. Think, now, let's, let's work through that. So he starts out and he says, You remember our labor and toil, brothers and sisters. We work night and day, so we might not burden any of you while we proclaim the gospel. Uh, you were witnesses of how pure, upright, blameless our conduct was. As you know, we dealt with each one of you like a father with his children, urging and encouraging and pleading you to lead a life worthy of God. Okay, that first part, if you don't think about it in terms of uh, a vision of community organized around Christ, where Christ is the member and the goal, and a vision of community that is held accountable to Christ, but instead you just think about it in the common kind of terms of a community as a bunch of people who like a similar thing, okay? If you think about it that way, that first part sounds like super humble braggy ultimately, doesn't it? Like Paul saying, yeah, like, I was really working hard, but I totally didn't want to burden you all. So, you know, because that's how great I am. But if you think about it in the more radical sense, that Paul is including him as one member of a community that is also subject to and informed by Christ, Paul's letter moves from, the, the, the verses here especially moves from a humble brag to being a model about how Christian community works. So, for example, two things are notable. One Paul's not saying how great he is. It's not like, uh, I don't know, the only thing I could call to mind is the classic sitcom representation of a visit by an in-law. You know, like, I'll just sit here in the corner eating stewed tomatoes from this can. I don't want to be a burden. You guys go about your day. Don't even pretend that I'm here. And, of course, all those claims are really about saying what? Focus on me. I'm pretty important, but I also don't want to act like I'm a burden at the same time. Paul's not doing that. He's not saying he's going to keep a low profile or wear beige. What Paul is saying 
is that in a community organized around Christ, the goal is not the honoring, veneration, or even the thriving of specific individuals. In a community oriented around Christ, our goal is what? To benefit the other without the expectation of return. The Christian vision of community is fundamentally different because at least in my understanding and most of the communities that I belong to, the reasons why we belong to communities in some ways are about the kind of benefits that you get back from that community. People might view church as a great place to network and make friends and find social support. People might uh, you know, say the community of sports fans is a great place to find similarly minded people who you can hang out with. Uh, Pokemon is a great community because you enjoy playing the game and you create a good trade network. In each instance, regular human communities are partially about the good of the community, but they're also significantly about what you get back from the community. What Paul's saying here is that in the Christian vision of community, our understanding of community is not about what we get from it, but rather how we can put the other person first within it. That's a fundamentally different understanding than of how community works. It's not a community that I engage in for the sake of my benefit. Instead, it's a community that I engage in for the sake of the benefit of the other. It's not for nothing that the Christian understanding of love over and over and over in the New Testament is what? Agopic self-giving. That we die to ourselves so that the other might fully live. The second thing that is an implication of this way of thinking about community, and so I don't, I'm sorry if I'm, you know, I don't want to be too theoretical about community here, but I, don't, I, I thought this was interesting anyway. The, the, the most normal human communities are about perpetuating their own existence. Like, what is the ultimate end of or telos of the community of Pokemon players? It's selling Pokemon, right? I mean, like, we might enjoy it, but the enjoyment is a, is a, is a, is a side effect or product of the underlying commodity. You know, and if you're not a Pokemon person, if you're a sports fan, what is the point of sports fanship? The real point of it is to make money for a franchise. Isn't it? I mean, like, it, you may also enjoy it. You may find it fun. But the ultimate reason why it exists and were that reason to drop out, the reason why it would fall apart, is because that community is perpetuated for the sake of some economic interest. See, most human communities are in some way about doing something else. They're about, in some way, creating either the accumulation of money or of power. What is the goal of the Christian community? What, is it, what does it exist for? What is it, what is it called to do? The goal of the Christian community, Paul makes clear here, at the end of this verse, is what? Is it to self-perpetuate Christianity? Is it to... Uh, extend a hegemonic conception of how the social order ought to be regulated by incorporating certain Eurocentric ideas about how we act in the world that generally privilege certain kinds of groups. Is that its goal? That's not what Paul says here. What Paul says here is that the goal of this community is what? To call us into God's glory and to call us into joy. The Christian vision of community is not an end in and of itself. It's not a pretext for selling a product. It is a process by which we are called into the glory of God. And the durability and beauty of that community are not a product of the folks who make it up. It's a product of what they point towards. It's a product of the word working in them. It's a fundamentally different kind of community because it's a community that is founded on 
truth that is oriented around joy and whose expression is a love that is without end and without condition. It is one in which faith works, in which love labors, and finally, in which hope endures. All of a sudden, out of the small details of this letter becomes this beautiful argument about the character of Christian community. Christian community is not a principle. It's not a shared idea. It's not a shared habit. It it is in part all those things, but ultimately it is about fidelity to a person. And in being faithful to the person of Jesus, we are drawn into the very glory of God and we are drawn into the possibility of a community in which we can experience true joy. So if thesis one is Christian community aims at something beyond itself, thesis two is that it's a product of the word working in us and not simply our repetition of a habit or our repetition of a shared vision or our our, our sharing some interest. In other words, Christian community is unlike human communities because it points towards something beyond it and because its animating principle is something more than just our effort. Christian community is different because it aims at the beauty and person and glory of Jesus and because what animates it and what makes it possible is not just our own effort, but is the sustaining presence of Christ. And praise God for that. So many times these days we talk about communities and how communities make judgments and what's the relationship between communities and morality and how do we think about communities and how communities create goods. Here's the thing, a community that is only human, that does not point beyond itself, and that is not founded on something else, a community that essentially, and I'm not going to repeat the joke that I have here, but let's say a community that loves the smell of its own stink, is a community that is utterly unable to change. It's a community that is utterly unable to break out of its habits. It's a community that is utterly unable to ask, is it moral or is it just that we think about this this way or that way? Is a community that makes it utterly impossible to say, is our community doing the right thing? If you look at how most people think about morality these days, what do they do? They say, we share certain conceptions of what kind of behavior is right, and your behavior either matches or doesn't match with those conceptions. We might say the community sanctions it. We might say that it's legal, but we don't ask quite as much as we used to. Is it right or is it good or is it noble or is it just or is your understanding of what is moral or good pointing at a standard that we developed or is it pointing at a standard that is somewhere else? Praise God if we have a community that is organized not around our own shared habits and practices, but instead that is grounded and founded in Jesus and that aims at Him and his kingdom, that community has this beautiful possibility that we can look at it and we can say, are we living up to the standard which he has set? Are our rules and practices and the ways that we relate to each other other, advancing the gospel in a meaningful way? A Christian community is a beautiful community because it is oriented towards something beyond it which can judge it and which can ask, is it achieving the thing that it ought to achieve? And simultaneously, it is animated by something more than our effort, so we're given an endurance when we face challenges so that we can point towards something new and different, a new kingdom. Here's the hard part. What we're really talking about here, and I'm sorry to harp on this over the last year, is the difference between what I'd call a sacred, human-centered community and a holy, Christ-centered community that puts the other person first. That's what we're talking about. You remember the distinction. A community that loves the smell of its own stink is a community that will not change 
It's a community that says we have our habits and our traditions and our practices and they're good because we said they're good. And if you don't believe them, there's something wrong with you. That's how a sacred human oriented community would work. A holy community would say what? You know, our practices could be wrong. We're flawed people. Jesus is the measure of what we do. And because Jesus is the measure of what we do, we constantly have to act, ask, are we loving other people as much as we should? The sacred human community then, and this is the tough thing to connect, the sacred human community, how would it relate to other communities? If you have a community that is about its own morals, its own vision of the world, its own understanding of the world, and it never asks the question of are those morals, understanding, or practices good? It only says they are ours and we believe them and therefore we move into the world on that basis. How would the sacred human community interact with other communities? This is, to me, this is mind-blowing to think about the implications for all kinds of things that we are constantly debating about in America these days. The sacred human community moves through the world constantly finding other communities misguided, incomplete. They don't believe the same things we believe. They don't understand the things that we understand. They need to be changed. They could be the subject of violence or coercion. But the point is, if you believe in a human-centered, sacred understanding of community, any difference that you encounter will automatically be one that you have to eliminate or change. The weird thing is, for all the criticisms of Christianity as being... I don't know, uh, about uh, violent metaphysics or any of the, the number of different kinds of charges that people might heap on it. In a holy community that is organized around God, when we encounter people who are different from us, what do we say? Do they think the same as us is not the question. The question is, how do I act towards someone when I see the face of God in them? How do I organize my community and my relationship to it when I see that person is made in the image of and invested with the very dignity of Christ himself. And then I see that person and I seek to understand and to love them and invite them into community with me. That's the beautiful thing. Our understanding of this, which is basically if you think something is true, you exclude other people, is exactly wrong. If we say our community's norms are the highest thing, we'll run around judging and excluding everyone else. If we say that our community is oriented towards the sacred person of Christ, we see that dignity in every person. And when we see it, we respond to it by loving and inviting them. A community which is holy by its nature is a community which asks for and demands engagement with others on their own terms, for their own purposes, on the basis of their dignity, and for the sake of transforming us so that we might be a better community by inviting them to be with us. That community is not made incomplete by the presence of other beliefs, but it is made more complete by including more people. What a doozy for how we think about the relationship between our faith and our culture to say that the difference between a sacred community, which is oriented around the valorization of human goods and a holy community, which sees the face and person of Jesus in each person, that community is a radically different, uniquely Christian kind of community, which is oriented towards the person of Jesus, which is founded in the truth of his word, and which is constantly asking the question, when I encounter someone else, am I encountering them in love, or am I encountering them by presuming that I am in some way better than or able to judge them on the basis of my presuppositions? Paul says that the Christian community totally breaks that concept. He says in 14, for you, but, well, <laughs> this is where it gets really difficult. 
Paul has this vision of community that's implied in this text. He has this vision of a community that is fundamentally different from and uh, breaks that kind of sacred understanding of community. If, if you believe that what, that's what he said in the beginning of Thessalonians, as I do, there's this real significant problem when you get to verses 14, 15, and 16. For you, brothers and sisters, become imitators of the churches and God in Christ, and uh, Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your compatriots as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displease God and oppose everyone by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so they may be saved. Thus, they have constantly been filling up the measure of their sins and God's wrath has overtaken them at last. Now, this is the difficulty. If all the things I was saying about uh, Paul seeing a uniquely different kind of community are right, we'd expect exactly the opposite response when it came to Paul talking about Jewish folk. And in fact, we'd expect exactly the opposite response from a person who sees the sacred character for what's terrible about it and instead wants a holy engagement with people on the basis of or on the grounds of uh, the dignity of Christ in them. It seems really, and if you think about how this, uh, uh, pa- this passage has been used in the history of Christianity, it literally is one of the most significant passages in creating a biblical justification for anti-Semitism. In fact, there are scores of articles on the comma between 14 and 15. It's literally known in biblical study circles as the anti-Semitic comma. And because here's the thing, if you remove that comma... Paul would be talking about a specific group of Jewish people who are serving a specific Judean interest. But if you place the comma, Paul seems to be talking about all Judaism. It's tough. And you should know that there are good arguments uh, around this passage that say that it was just something that was added later. So, uh, first of all, it's theologically incompatible with Paul's other letters where he says uh, Jesus' death was the fault of the rulers of his age uh, and uh, that all of Israel will be saved. There's a chronological error here. Uh, there were no extensive persecutions by the Christians, uh, by the Jews in Palestine prior to the first Jewish war. Uh, that thing about God's holy wrath overtaking them uh, is a, uh, a, a verb form and a phrase that typically refers to uh, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened after the writing of this letter. And so there's a lot of people that say this thing about uh, Jewish folk is inserted significantly later Uh, for uh, the sake of uh, both accounting for the destruction of the temple and thinking uh, about what it meant. I don't know, though. If we take the scripture as the scripture is, uh, what do we do? We'll put aside the debate for a moment whether or not it's uh, an interpolation or a later edition and just look at the passage. If you read that comma to imply that Paul is talking about all Jewish folk, it just doesn't make sense. Jesus was a Jew. Paul understood himself to be a Jew. The hearers of the letters understood themselves to be Jews. It would be a willfully, historically, and contextually ignorant reading, and they've happened, to see this as an indictment of Judaism writ large. So how do we make uh, consistent the vision of a community which is holy and not relying on sacred exclusions with this passage that has some really tough things that have authorized Christian anti-Semitism? How do we understand it? Well, I think the only way to read it is this, that Paul's not referring to Judaism writ large. He's referring to a specific faction in Judea that resisted the gospel 
and tried to slow its spread because it wasn't in line with their norms for understanding Jewish practice. And that what Paul is criticizing here is a tendency to use the sacred human community tradition-based insights to exclude new encounters with God. The essence of his gripe is that God has come to those communities to free them and to introduce them to the possibility of new uh, encounter with and intimacy with God through the person of Jesus Christ and the communities have rejected it on the basis of their own tradition. Now think about what this means though. What it means is this, in order to understand this as being not about a critique of all Judaism, but of a specific community, you have to see that what Paul is advancing here is an idea that says the real thing in the world that is the issue is not the operations of a specific group of people, but it is a mindset that says that we ought to, uh, to, uh, to glorify and to focus on and to adhere to our traditions at the expense of being open to an intimate new relationship with the person of God in Christ Jesus. The root here of all the violence and difficulty and resistance to the church is only secondarily about the specific group of Jewish folks from Judea. It is primarily about a vision of community that says, instead of trying to seek the face of Christ in people, that we instead (coughs) validate and glorify our own traditions. And if you start to think about it, one of the things you see about the character of sacred human community is this. Sacred human community, as opposed to the holy community, has this strange kind of nostalgia that is built into it. Sacred human visions of community are always about restoring the things that we've lost. Gosh, our Judaism has been diluted by these Christian folk who have a different understanding of it. Our traditions are being upset. Our children don't think in the same way. Sacred human community is almost always about this kind of nostalgia where the primary currency is fear. And the primary uh, thing about the nostalgia is it's about idolatry. See, nostalgia is about the idea here that if we got back to the fundamentals, if we practiced things the right way we were supposed to, uh, that we'd, we'd be good again. And the problem is that we've deviated from our own tradition and from what's great about our own religious framework. And so what we have to do is to fight against this incursion from the outside. That is the logic of sacred human community. It's also logic, by the way, that the church employs all the time in defending itself as a sacred human community. Now, if you think about that, the beautiful thing that you'll see is that sometimes the church acts in ways that are profoundly sacred and therefore unholy because it defends its own boundaries at the expense of being open to the person and the face of Christ. But the community of Christ, and we talked about this a a ton at the beginning, hypothetically is supposed to be different. The community of Christ is not based on nostalgia. It's based on a longing for establishing a kingdom that has never been. And the community of Christ is not based on fear, but on joy. After this kind of highfalutin explanation of why he's been so busy and Paul can't visit the people in Thessalonica, he does say one thing that's crucially important. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus? It is coming. Is it not you? Yes, you are our glory and joy. 
There it is, and that's the beautiful thing. If Christ, if your community is holy, if Christ is the focus of your community, the member who is also the goal of your community, if Christ is the thing around which your community is organized, then the point of your community specifically is give an account to Jesus at the second coming of what your community has done. And what Paul is saying here is that the substance of that account, the important thing in that account, the crucial part of that account is that we want to tell to Jesus at the second coming that we have taken our joy and we have taken everything that is beautiful to us by having loved other people in the name of Jesus Christ. A Christian community is not about nostalgia or fear. It is instead about a radical love that is without constraint and one in which we take joy. The Greek there is kara, and it means that there is something that is both the giver and the cause and the object of our delight. It's something that I think that you can only understand if you think about in terms of a, a relationship with a sibling or with a parent or with a child where that person becomes the reason for and the purpose of your existence and simultaneously is always and constantly bringing you an incredible and overwhelming joy. And as a result, you would give everything to that person, you would open yourself up to them and you would give them whatever they demanded because they are the thing that becomes your joy and your delight. The difference between the human sacred community of fear and the holy community of joy is that in a community that is organized around Jesus, instead of worrying about what we have to lose or what uh, is going to get us off track, instead we fix our eyes uh, determinately on the people around us and we take joy in them for the sake of demonstrating to Jesus our commitment to him, to the kingdom, and to them. That's my prayer as we move forward, not only in small decisions like deliberating about what we should do uh, for the rest of the year and serving our community. It, that, the thing I want us to think about as we move forward is, you know, for every time we sit down for a meeting or we think about our obligations or we think about budgets or spreadsheets or whether or not church is an annoying social obligation or any of the different things that you might feel in relationship to church, you might ask yourself first and foremost, do these people spark joy? Do these people bring in you and does loving them give to you a kind of spontaneous joy that gives you the sense that you love them without condition, that you extend yourself and grace to them without condition, and that you take joy in their thriving? That once again, we learn not only to love each other, but instead to utterly and fully rejoice in the presence and face of Jesus Christ in each one of us. And if it's not doing that, it's not because Mason doesn't spark joy or whoever else in the congregation doesn't spark joy, but instead it's because we ought to think about the character and direction of our own hearts. And we ought to think about what it means for us to throw ourselves into loving God, loving the kingdom, and loving each other such that as a church, we bring each other joy. Because if it isn't bringing joy for us, why do it? But more importantly, if it isn't bringing joy for us, why not? We are to be for each other vessels of joy, objects of love, and causes of infinite delight not only for uh, each individual, but because each individual is a member of a family that is the kingdom, and our job is to make it come about. Amen.